Good morning, everyone. How are we doing this morning? Good, good, good. All right, well, today we are going to bring uh, this series um, that we've been in for the past several weeks, we are going to bring it to a close. And as Pastor Matt said last week, these final two messages, um, his last week and mine today, really go hand in hand. They're uh, siblings, if you will. And so here's what I want to do today. I'm going to give away the punchline before we even get into it this morning. This morning, I really want you to look at and take a good hard look at your everyday ordinary life. And really, the phrase today is what's in your hands. I want you to look at what is in your hands and see how good and holy it really is. And a quote from last week that I want to say at the very beginning, we're going to come back to it at the end, but I really just want it to be kind of a lens that we look through um, throughout um, today's message is this. One of the greatest lies of the enemy is trying to get you to believe that your ordinary, everyday faithfulness and obedience are not enough to bring about significant kingdom impact. As most of you know, I grew up in Haskell, Oklahoma, a little small town south of Bigsby. It's where I went to school. It's where I eventually met my husband. It's where I played sports. But it wasn't where I went to church. From the age of about 10 years old all the way through getting married, my family and I drove 40 minutes one way, 40 minutes there, 40 minutes back to Muskogee, Oklahoma to attend church. And you may think since we live so far away that we weren't as involved as your normal churchgoer, but you would be absolutely false in that assumption. We were Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night people. If it was around a holiday and there was a play or a cantata, because that is what we did in Muskogee, Oklahoma, um, we were in that play, and so we were there during the week and for practices and everything. So it was a, a home away from home for me. And when I became a teenager and got into youth group, and youth group was my actual jam, as you can imagine, all of my closest friends were there. And so what began to naturally develop is my life had compartments. I had my school friends and I had my church friends. I had my school activities and my church activities. I had church Rachel and school Rachel. And very, very rarely did those two compartments overlap. They were separate in my mind and in practice. I tried a few times to bring those worlds together, but because of my uh, flawed way of thinking and just being naive about how those two things could come together, all of my attempts failed. I share this with you because I think that this is a common way to live life. You don't have to have a reasonably large distance like I had between those two places in order to build compartments for different categories of your life to live in. Work life, home life, school life, work life, church life, work life. Because of my personality and the way I'm wired and my particular Enneagram number, I have a certain way that I like to handle things and life. I lean towards order and planning and getting things done. And because of this, I have a hard time unwinding and relaxing. If things are left to be done, I can't just stop um, with ease, which can sometimes make rest and fun difficult for me. But if it's scheduled, I can lean in. My husband, Bodie, has given this person a name. We call her Vacation Rachel. <laughs> uh, Vacation Rachel is everything that I wish I could be in normal life, okay? She's fun and she's spontaneous. Um, she can jump and just do something um, on a whim. She can sit and read for hours without feeling guilty. She's good people. Now, obviously, this is kind of a silly little example, but it's kind of further my point. I can't live like Vacation Rachel all the time, but it, it's another compartment that we do. We have real-life Rachel and Vacation Rachel. 
So you're probably thinking right now of certain compartments and divisions that you've had in your life or maybe that you have right now in your life. But the division that I would like to tackle um, today is the compartments of our spiritual life and our real life. Or put another way, the sacred and the secular. This is the idea that some things in our life are sacred or spiritual and they deeply matter to God and other things are secular or physical or worldly, if you will, and so they don't matter to God or at least they don't matter as much to him. And so this sacred-secular divide is born. One of the many flaws in this way of thinking is simply just by basic math, the majority of our lives is secular. Let's just take a second to break this down. Imagine your life, or let's just imagine a day in your life. Imagine a day in your life as one of those perfect pantries that are so popular right now, the ones where like every piece of cereal has a place and has a purpose, and everything is in clear containers, and they have these beautiful labels, and it's color-coded, and when you open one of these pantries at someone's house, or when you see one revealed on TV, you feel an instant deep shame about the crap show that is your own pantry at home. You guys know what I'm talking about, okay? But today, a day in your life is one of those perfect pantries, so take heart, all right? So the biggest portion of your pantry is spent working. Now, by working, I don't mean clocking in and clocking out and receiving a paycheck, although obviously it includes that as well. Work is way more than what you get paid for, and all the moms said amen. (laughs) Cooking, cleaning, exercise, running errands, washing the car, remodeling your bathroom, folding laundry, the pickup line at school, the stuff of life. Another good-sized pantry is spent resting or sleeping. We all spend about an average of about eight hours sleeping a day. Then we have another version of rest, reading a good book, having a glass of wine on the back porch, playing a board game with your family. Now there's only a small portion of your pantry left. This is what's left for the sacred stuff of life, reading the scripture, prayer, attending church, And if you notice, we didn't even add in any time spent on your phone or spent watching TV or on Netflix. So even if we are monks and we spend zero extra time on our phone or on TV and we spend every extra hour cultivating our spiritual life and growth, this is still just a small piece of our lives. So much of life would fall into the category of mundane, the work of life, the paid and the unpaid, There's nothing hip or glamorous or noteworthy about it. We don't feel like we're changing the world or impacting the kingdom or making significant progress. We are simply just getting things done, marking things off of the checklist, adulting. And so it can feel frustrating and empty, like what we're doing is pointless and cause us to ask the question, does any of this really matter? Obviously, I already gave that away. It absolutely does matter. In fact, it matters a whole lot. But let's start with a little history lesson to understand a bit more as to why we lean towards this sacred-secular divide in our lives. This view has been around a long, long time. It's at least as old as Plato. Plato used this dichotomy of a spiritual world and a physical world as though they were two separate places and his goal was to get from one to the other. And over time, this worldview sunk into the church. Does that sound familiar? Trying to get from one place to another. In the Middle Ages, the church was flat out teaching that all work outside of the church was secular. No matter how much good it may have done for the city around them, the people around them, it was secular. 
In fact, the word calling was only used for church work. Unless you were a nun or a monk or a theologian, you worked and you put in your time at, you, at your job in order to get off and then go work for the Lord and then go serve the Lord. We have moved past some of this, but I can tell you this is still deeply ingrained in our way of thinking. Fast forward a few hundred years and in come the reformers. And their mission was to reform the church inside and out. And one of the battle points was this sacred-secular divide. The way it was worded at the time was that you had a spiritual estate and a temporal estate, or things that will last or things that will die whenever you die. Martin Luther attacked this idea forcefully. He says this, It is pure invention that the pope, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate while princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are called the temporal estate. This is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy, yet no one need be intimidated by it, and that for this reason. All Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is no difference among them except that of office. We are all consecrated priests by baptisms, says St. Peter, says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. So we see from this Luther quote and from other reformers that they would quote Peter saying, you are a chosen people, you are a royal priesthood, and then turn around and say shocking things like, we actually believe this to be true. We are all priests. And yes, as I said, we have the gift of having heard a version of this the majority of our lives and the big umbrella concept we understand with our modern minds. But at the time, this was provocative. It was a provocative thought. Keep in mind, the priest and the priest alone could mediate on behalf between the creator and his creation. The Reformation brought along the belief that, yes, you are a farmer and you are a priest. You are a mom, and you are a priest. You are a barista, and you are a priest. You mediate between the creator and the creation. You are made in his image. You are his representatives to the world. You are called. It's your ministry. Right after Bodhi and I got married, we jumped into ministry, as you guys know, as you've heard before. We served for a few months, and then we ended up stepping into the official youth pastor's roles at this church. And initially, it was to fill a space that needed to be filled. We loved the teens, and we were like, hey, we're going to jump in, and we want this. We're going to do this. Once we jumped in, we kind of each had our own kind of calling moment where it was like, yes, you know what, this is what we want to do. And the dream of being in full-time ministry was born at that time. And we set our sights toward it and began to pursue this being our job and that we being in full-time ministry. Fast forward eight years later, <laughs> we are still in the same role and the same job and still not in full-time ministry, still working outside of the church as well. But at this time in our youth ministry, we saw a little opening. Our town at the time built a skate park and a little complex, and along with it, there was this concession stand, and it was empty. And I'm not really sure why the city officials built a skate park, because they didn't so much like the crowd of people that hung out at the skate park. I don't know why you build a skate park and don't like skaters, okay? But Bodie and I fell in love with this group of people, this riffraff, as the city called them, all right? We loved them. And so we were like, okay, we, we need to do something. And this concession stand was open, and it was like, this is it. 
this is our ticket into full-time ministry. So we could be in ministry and also have the additional income. And so the, the dream of the shack was born. I think we have a picture of us at the time. Yes, that is us with our food handler's licenses so that we could make the Frito chili pies and all of the things. And then this was a picture of um, our, I had a calendar on our fridge and we were counting down to Bodhi's last day of work. He gave in his notice. We, we pushed in all of our chips on this, all right? He gave, in, gave his notice. He officially quit his job. This was his last day. As a family, we were counting down to his last day of work and our first day of full-time ministry. And we started the shack. And it was a beautiful year. And yes, <laughs> God did a lot of amazing things. Um, we were able to make so many beautiful connections with this group of kids that were down there. They opened up to us um, in a way that they hadn't before. They opened up to God in a way they hadn't before. We started skate church. We had skate competitions. Um, our family had a lot of fun. The, the girls were little at the time. We didn't have Mikey yet. And so what's better than living in a snow cone stand? I mean, like we were there all the time. And they were like, what's for dinner? And we were like, whatever's rolling or cooking in there. That's what's for dinner, all right? Frito chili pie, hot dogs rolling, snow cones, whatever. So it was like a dream world for our kids. Um, but it was hard as well. And we were obviously, I mean, struggling a bit financially and just pushing through. It was, God did a lot of beautiful things. But being in full-time ministry at the end of it was not one of those things that happened. After the season um, Bodhi had to go back to work in order for us to make it, and that dream died again, if you will. What I began to realize at the time, and what I definitely, it was slowly at the time, what I definitely know now looking back, is that full-time ministry was an idol in my life. And now that I'm a little older and hopefully a little wiser, I now even see the, the flaw in the phrase full-time ministry. My heart was in the right place. Um, I, it's not that the desire was bad. I was just putting all of my hope into something that couldn't hold the weight. And I was very naive about what a life of ministry really meant and what it looked like. If I'm in full-time ministry now, then what does that mean for all of those years that I spent in ministry and also at home, raising my kids at home? What does that mean for Bodhi when he spent outside working at the church, do, laying tile, doing construction, and then coming home. And in the evenings, we worked for what the church need. We prepared for Sunday. We prepared for Wednesday. If I'm in full-time ministry now, then what does that mean for you? For all the people sitting in this room who work outside of the church or work outside of the nonprofit world, that you're part-time workers for his kingdom? That God didn't call you to your job in the same way that he called me to mine? Absolutely not. When we say it out loud, it sounds silly, but this is such an easy trap to fall into, and this is the language that we are used to. And all too often, there's a major disconnect between spiritual life and, well, life. The way of Jesus is about living a seamless, integrated life where the divide is gone and our lives are fully immersed in the kingdom of God. All of life as worship as it was in the beginning. Genesis 1, 27, 28 says this, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
We are made in the image of God. Each and every one of us, we are his statues in his temple, which is the whole earth and everything in it, made to represent him, created in the image of God, to make visible the invisible God, the image of God. This is our title. And the latter part of what we just read is our job description. Theologians call this the cultural mandate. It's the how for us, how we are supposed to live out all of our callings on earth as the image of God, as the Imago Dei image bearers. And so let's quickly break down this cultural mandate. Two things this morning. Number one, we are called to fill the earth to be fruitful and increase in number. And now there's an obvious thing being said here, but this doesn't just mean to get married and have kids. It's more than that. Because all of the created living things were made to produce, to simply increase in number. But humans are given, given multiplication as a task to fulfill with intention, to fill the earth. It means procreation and civilization. He wants human beings to make babies and make community centers and churches and schools and governments and cities and countries. Think about it. He could have just spoken the word and created millions of people and the structures to sustain them, but he didn't. He made it our job to develop and grow and build, to fill the earth. And number two, to subdue it. So God created this good world, but it isn't completely finished. He creates humans and puts us on the earth with a job to do. And to subdue this earth is a part of that good work. It's not just sit back on the, on the beach with an umbrella drink type of situation. Even in the beginning, when everything was good and perfect, we were created to work. And this, again, is pre-fall. Because work is not the curse. Because of the fall, work is now cursed, but work is good. Subduing is the work we see God doing in his creating in those first six days. Subduing, making order from chaos. That's what we see God doing, and that is what we are now called to do. Making order from chaos. God left creation with a deep, untapped potential that is to be unlocked with our labor. He made the earth in such a way that we would have to work for it to become all that it was designed to be, to reach in and pull out what we see living inside, to unfold its beauty and its purpose as we learn more about it, as we put in the work and the time that it takes to really cultivate something, to cultivate because we are all gardeners, creating something from mere potential, making order from chaos. Tim Keller in the beautiful book, Every Good Endeavor, says this, we are to be gardeners who take an active stance toward their charge. They do not leave the land as it is. They rearrange it in order to make it most fruitful, to draw out the potentialities for growth and development out of the soil. They dig up the ground and rearrange it with a goal in mind to rearrange the raw material of the garden so that it produces food, flowers, and beauty. And that is the pattern for all work. It is creative and assertive. It is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. That last line there and this quote is a beautiful definition for what we say when we are talking about work today. Work 
rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. And this is the call of us all. And again, think back to your pantry. This is the biggest portion of your pantry, work you get paid for and work you don't. What is in your hands? Whatever you put your hands to, what is in your hands? Because what is in your hands, and don't go spiritual on me, don't go big, lofty goals. What is in your hands? The practical, everyday stuff of life. What is in your hands? Because what you do with your hands, you are gardening the earth. You are rearranging the raw material. This is your ministry. This is how you help people thrive and flourish. It's the part you play. It's the spot you fill, the place where you do your thing. And again, not just the things that we would automatically categorize as spiritual. Because as we can see from the beginning, work is good. Work is holy. With all of the things of our life, we are actively filling the earth and subduing it, bringing order to this world by creating new productive systems at work, bringing beauty to this world by holding your sleeping baby during nap time because during this particular season of their growth, they will only sleep whenever you are holding them bringing wonder to the world by creating a piece of art for your gallery, bringing excellence to this world that points to your creator by simply taking pride in your work and wanting to do it really well. If you're in school studying and building deep knowledge for the career you plan to go into in order to make new discoveries and further the work of that field, all of this is weighty, spiritual, holy work of God. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. First of all, context of this scripture, Paul is basically outlining some dinner party etiquette here in this passage, what to eat, what not to eat. And then he gives us this most simple instruction, whether you eat or drink, what could be more ordinary or more mundane than eating and drinking? something that we literally all have to do to survive. And then he says, whatever you do. Whatever you do. So no matter what we are doing, every day, everything, the glamorous and the unseen, the glorified and the boring, everything should be done for the glory of God. Eugene Peterson says it like this in the message version of Romans 12. He says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. All of life as worship, all of life as an offering, placed before him, placed at the feet of Jesus, surrendered back to him. This is worship. It's tragic that we limit worship to just a few songs on a Sunday morning. This is obviously worship, but this worship is so much more than that. This, what we do up here, what we just did together as a community, this worship is designed to fan a flame that already exists inside of you, to fan this flame of worship so that you can go out from this room and live out the majority of your worship outside of the walls of the church. Because in a Genesis-shaped world, all of life is worship. John Mark Homer wrote this in his book, Garden City. 
We live in a world with no compartments. For those who are spiritual, who are filled with the active, dynamic spirit of God himself, the line between heaven and earth is thin at best. The sacred is never far away. And your job, your career, or whatever it is that you do all day long isn't something outside of Jesus' calling on your life. It's right at the center of it. Think about that for just a minute. How does that change your view of your life and the contents of your everyday life when looking at it through that lens? You are right at the center of God's call on your life right now and in this season. And you are filled with the active, dynamic spirit of God. And you take that spirit into every situation, into every room, into every conversation that you enter into. You are a walking temple of God. And you bring that spirit into all of life. Every single situation that you walk into, you walk in with that spirit. But the enemy does not want you to know that. He does not want you to take a hold of that and walk in that authority and walk in that power and walk with that purpose and walk with that calling. He does not want you to do that because it is dangerous when we can grab a hold of that. Back again to the quote that we started the day with. One of the greatest lies of the enemy is to get you to believe that your ordinary, everyday faithfulness and obedience are not enough to bring about significant kingdom impact. It is enough. It is bringing about significant kingdom impact right now. We want so bad for the glamorous, but if we can only pay attention, our holy work is right in front of us. I once read that attentiveness is prayer breathed at street level, and it stuck with me. I preached a message a few weeks ago about the slow work of God and just this, this phrase was, God, give us eyes to see. And I think the same phrase and the same question can apply today. Give us eyes to see the work you've called me to. Give me eyes to see the calling that is my life right now. Even if it looks completely different than what I thought it was going to look like, give me eyes to see this calling that you've put in front of me, this good, good work. Because with the right view of this work, when we can fully surrender all of it to him, we can watch as our lives become fully integrated. No more divides in our lives with our spiritual life and our real life. Everything is sacred. Everything is holy. Everything in service of his kingdom. I, you, we are in full-time ministry, full-time pursuit to bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. What you do matters. What you do day in and day out, it matters. It matters deeply to God for the here and now, for right now in this earth, in this time, and that is enough and it stands on its own. But we also know that there is a future and that what we do matters and it will carry on and to shape that as well. As we end this series, A Better Story, today I thought it only fitting to end today with a story. 
When J.R.R. Tolkien had been working on The Lord of the Rings for years and years, he came to an impasse. And he began to fear that the end of his life would come without being able to finish what he believed to be the work of his life. And one morning he woke up with a short story in his mind and he wrote Leaf by Niggle. It was about a painter named Niggle. The Oxford English Dictionary defines Niggle as to work in a fiddling or ineffective way, to spend time on unnecessarily petty details. See, Niggle was a perfectionist, and he would spend an unnecessary amount of time on the little small details, and he would become distracted from the big picture. We are told that Niggle, he knew he had a journey to make, this long journey to make, and he didn't want to make this journey, but he knew it was inevitable. This long journey was death. But he had this one particular painting in mind. He had this vision of a leaf and then zoomed out from there an entire tree and all the landscape around it. And he laid out a canvas so big that he needed a ladder in order to accomplish it, in order to paint this picture, this vision that he had been given. He set out to work on it, but because of his attention to small details and the distraction of pausing to help others, the long journey came and they were only able to preserve one single leaf from his painting. And the leaf was put up on display, leaf by niggle, and noticed by a few eyes on earth. But the story doesn't end there. After death, Niggle is put on a train toward the mountain of the heavenly afterlife. And when Niggle gets to the outskirts of the heavenly country, something catches his eye. He runs to it, and there it is. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished, branches stretched out, leaves blowing in the wind, just as Niggle had pictured it and was unable to finish it and accomplish it on earth. He gazed at the tree. He slowly lifted his arms out wide and said, this is a gift. Tim Keller says this about this story. Everyone wants to be successful rather than forgotten. And everyone wants to make a difference in life. But that is beyond the control of any of us. If this life is all there is, then everything will eventually burn up in the death of the sun. And no one will even be around to remember anything that has happened. Everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference. And all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught. Unless there is a God. If the God of the Bible exists, and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling, can matter forever. Stand with me this morning. If you would just close your eyes for a minute before we receive communion together. I just want to take a moment to pause and reflect as we end this entire series, pushing us, calling us, convicting us, 
with the story that we are living with our lives. And I just want you to reflect for a moment, specifically today, with the question, what's in your hands? What's in your hands? What does your schedule look like? What does your job look like? What does your home life look like? What does a day in your life look like? What's in your hands? And look at it through the lens of purpose and calling and gardening the earth with what is in your hands. Give us eyes to see. God, I just pray for divine revelation in hearts this morning. Unveil the beauty and the purpose that is their lives right now. Right exactly the way that it is. Unveil that beauty and purpose. place in us this deep calling for this season of life. Implant in us the purpose and the strength and the bravery to step into that in a new and different way. Show us, God, how you're already at work and help us to partner with you. begin to prepare your elements this morning. you've called us to remember 
And that's what we want to step into this morning. remember your story that is our story we hold this bread in our hands that represents your body that was broken for us on the cross we remember that moment in history we remember that moment in time We remember what it means for us as a community and for us as individuals. bloodshed Jesus we remember your blood that makes a way it covers every single one of my shortcomings of my mistakes my sin where I missed the mark you never did remember that today as we hold this cup of juice in our hands we remember taking a minute or two of just gratitude for this moment specifically for each of us to stir up gratitude in our hearts for what is in our hands for our day to day life